Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Swami, we just had uh, our all NYC recently. That was really fun. Yeah, it was a good time. 500 residents in one room at one time. Uh, it's amazing. It's the only place that can, that can actually happen. It's so cool to sit, to kind of sit at the front and look up at residents from all of, all over the the area all together. It's really cool. Yeah, and it's a nice forum to sort of highlight the speakers in the area. And we also brought in a great outside speaker. We brought in Stephen Stack, the president oh, of the AMA. That was so cool. I'm just I'm so proud as a specialty to have the president of the AMA being one of ours. And he he was such a great speaker. I just was hanging on every word. So. Yeah, we went to dinner with him the night before and just like a really nice down to earth guy. Uh, just did a great job engaging the audience. And it is really exciting. I'm kind of upset that the AMA president's only like a one year thing. So next year, who knows who we're going to get. But hopefully a couple more EM people are coming up and we'll have some more EM representation there. Yeah, it's so cool. All right. So uh, what are we going to talk about today? So one of our second year residents, Mark Mickley, gave an excellent talk on tick-borne illnesses. Now in New York, we're right in the heart of tick territory. So this is actually really relevant stuff for us. Yeah, we actually are probably going to be seeing more of these than we realize. You know, we think in an inner city, we won't see it, but people go out in the country all the time. They go for hikes and stuff. So they come back and then they come see us for their care. The problem with tick-borne illnesses is that they generally present with very non-specific viral syndrome type features. The patient may or may not have a fever. They may or may not have a rash. They may have other flu-like symptoms. And so it's easy to just say, oh, you've got a viral syndrome. Don't worry about it. But these are patients where, you know, if you give them the right medication, you can get them feeling better faster and you can prevent sort of more serious illnesses. The laboratory tests here are usually not very helpful and the titers are often not helpful in terms of things like Lyme disease or their so delayed that by the time they come back, the patient's already left you and you're not going to be able to help them. So we need to know how to clinically diagnose these tick-borne diseases if we're going to help people. Totally. These can be tricky illnesses to diagnose. So let's just kind of start by backing up with the basics. There's three major ticks you need to know. It can be helpful to think about the type of tick your patient may have been exposed to because it can help you pin down the likely infection as well as any possible co-infections your patient might have. So to start, Ixodes scapularis, also known as the deer tick or the black-legged tick, is found in the northeastern United States and the upper Midwest. This tick is responsible for spreading Lyme, which is one of the most common in tick illnesses, also babesiosis and anaplasmosis. It does its dirty work in the spring, summer, and autumn months, but it, as long as the temperature is above freezing, a tick could be looking for a host. Yeah, the other ones that we need to think about are Amboloma americanum, or the Lone Star Tick. Thanks for giving me that one to uh, pronounce. <laughs> and that one's found in the southeastern and eastern United States. It's responsible for spreading ehrlichiosis, tularemia, and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, another one of the misnamed diseases because you don't get it in the Rocky Mountains. You get it really in the eastern seaboard kind of area. The Appalachians are a much more likely place. We should call it Appalachian Spotted Fever. You think That's I, that, a little... Is that got to catch on? Um, I, I think, I think it's no. too ingrained. All right. Rocky mountain spotted fever. It is. Plus Rocky mountain spotted fever is fun to say. Rocky mountain spotted fever. <laughs> it does sound a little bit more interesting than Appalachian <laughs> mountain spotted fever. I'll give you that. And then the other tick that we need to know is Dermacenter variabilis, which is the American dog tick. And that one's found throughout the U S east of the Rocky mountains and in California, this one spreads tularemia as well as once again, Rocky mountain spotted fever. Okay, so how do people get these illnesses? Well, ticks are generally found near the ground in brushy or wooded areas. They can't jump, they can't fly, but they can climb up grasses and low shrubs. And from there, they lay in wait 
for you to walk by and then you brush up against them and then they'll climb onto you and find a little nook and sink their little teeth in. They're like the Ugh. ninjas of the insect world. Is that what we're oh, talking about here? Yes, they are totally ninjas. I know. It just like makes your skin crawl as you're talking oh, about it. So. It's al- almost almost as bad as when the patient has scabies. Now, oh, being an ED doc, I know, right? It's the worst. So being an ED doc, your patients, your friends, your family, they're going to ask you how to avoid getting tick bites. And that's really the place to start. Just don't get the bite. And then I don't have to figure out what you have. So for starters, it's recommended that patients who are hanging out in wooded areas wear repellent at least a 20% DEET or permethrin treated clothing. There's also things that you can do like tucking your pants into your socks. That helps so that they can't crawl up. That's a nice place they like to get in. Once you get back out of being in the outdoors, you want to check for ticks right away. You should shower, check in all the little nooks and crannies and crevices like the umbilicus, behind the ears, in the ears, behind your knees and in your hair. This is where they like to get in all those grooves. And if you have a dog, you know, that's another place that they will kind of hang out. They'll go in the dog and then they'll get transferred to you. So you need to check your dogs as well. And the ears are kind of the place that ticks love to go because it's like kind of warm and it's like an easy place for them to lodge in and nobody looks for them. So it's a good practice practice to check yourself head to toe. If you can have someone else check you head to toe, check the other person head to toe, and then hop in the shower and clean everything off. And that's going to help you to get into all of those nooks and crannies and crevices. Now, while most tick-borne illnesses are carried in the tick's saliva and are transmitted immediately, Lyme disease is actually one that's a delayed transmission. The tick's actually got to be in place for 48 hours in order for the pathogen to make its way from the gut into the saliva, and then go to you. So Jenny, think about that for a moment. The tick is on you for 48 hours before you get Lyme disease. They're puking into you, basically. They're basically puking into your bloodstream. Puking Lyme into you. It's just disgusting. It's horrifying. Okay, so if you find the tick, you're going to want to remove it using a tweezer and steady upward pressure. None of this twisting or rocking or anything, just a nice steady upward pressure. And then after removing the tick, the area should be thoroughly cleaned. So imagine this, a patient comes in totally panicked like I would be because they just found a tick. They removed it or they asked you to remove it. What are you going to do next? So in general, antibiotic prophylaxis following a tick bite is not recommended. For sure, it's not recommended to prevent anaplasmosis, babesiosis, ehrlichiosis, or Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as there's really no evidence that it's effective and it may just delay onset of the illness. The only tick-borne illness for which prophylaxis is sometimes recommended is Lyme disease. The Infectious Disease Society of America does not generally recommend routine antimicrobial prophylaxis, but if you are in a highly endemic area, such as my two favorite states, New York or Minnesota, a single dose of doxycycline, 200 milligrams, may be offered to adult patients who are not pregnant or to children older than age 8. Here the dose would be 4 mg per kg. If very specific criteria are met, you might offer this. Yeah, so you know we are in a totally endemic area. I think we're about, what, 90 minutes from Lyme, Connecticut? which, you know, that's kind of where the disease started in the first place. So we're sort of in the epicenter here, and we're pretty liberal about offering prophylaxis. So you can offer it if, one, doxycycline is not contraindicated for some other reason. The attached tick can be identified as an Ixodes scapularis, and that would be nice if we can do it. But let's be honest, I have prophylaxed many patients for uh, Lyme disease, and I have never tried to identify whether it is Ixodes scapularis or not. I don't know that my skill set is that good. You don't. You can't use some crazy Google image and compare the ticks and oh, count them. I'm sure the... you could. I'm, I'm sure you could. I prefer sure not to. Why do prophylax somebody who pulled a sesame seed off their skin? That's definitely a possibility. <laughs> so number three, the time of attachment is greater than 36 hours based on the history, the engorgement size of the tick. If you get it, which again, that's pretty gross. 
prophylaxis can be started within 72 hours of tick removal. So they saw the tick, they thought it was on for 48 hours, they took it off, but they didn't get to you for 72 hours. Eh, might not be the best patient to give prophylaxis to. And then lastly, Lyme disease is common in the location where the patient lived or traveled to for this to be sort of in your realm of wanting to treat it. So all the endemic areas, the common illnesses, tick images, and all the like can really easily be found on the CDC website. And we'll post the relevant links to that in the show notes. So that covers prophylaxis. When prophylaxis is not indicated or declined, the patient should be counseled on the symptoms of tick-borne illness illnesses so that they can seek medical care if they do develop. So Swami, when a patient gets one of these illnesses, how do they present? Yeah, so Mark broke this down nicely into sort of four clinical syndromes to remember. The first is a localized rash with or without a fever. This syndrome is going to be caused either by early localized Lyme or ulceroglandular tularemia. In early localized Lyme, the patient will have erythema migrans, which is that red ring targetoid lesion. They may also have some flu-like symptoms like malaise and headache and fever and myalgias and even arthralgias. This typically occurs about a week to 14 days after the tick bite. Now, tularemia, on the other hand, is going to cause a localized rash without constitutional symptoms, although there may be some. Here, the rash is going to be localized erythema with a central necrosis or an eschar at the site of the tick bite. This is how you can differentiate Lyme from tularemia. This usually occurs about three to five days after the bite, so a little earlier than Lyme. Treatment here for localized Lyme and for the tularemia is going to be a 14-day course of doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID. Tularemia can occasionally present as a severe illness, and in those patients who look really ill, you're going to want to give them gentamicin 5 mg per kg IV per day, divided into three doses. The second syndrome is the febrile illness without a rash. This one is typically caused by anaplasmosis or ehrlichiosis. Now, these are two distinct diseases caused by different pathogens, but they're usually discussed together because they present so similarly. Here, the patient will have a fever and variable flu-like symptoms, and the severity of the illness can range wildly. Some patients can be actually very sick. As with most things, older and immunocompromised patients are particularly vulnerable. Rash is usually not present, and if it's found, co-infection with another illness such as Lyme should be considered. Patients generally get sick one to two weeks after exposure, and without treatment, fevers can persist for months. So this is one of the considerations you could think of for a patient who's coming in with a long-standing fever of unknown origin. Complications such as severe sepsis, multi-organ failure, and even death most often occur in vulnerable populations, but they can occasionally occur in previously healthy individuals, which is kind of scary and why I, as a New Yorker, like my nature contained two parks within city limits because <laughs> nature is very scary. So with anaplasmosis and ehrlichiosis, lab work is actually going to be helpful sometimes. In fact, abnormal labs in a patient who has Lyme, if you got labs on them, should actually prompt consideration for either a co-infection with another one of these illnesses or you don't have Lyme to begin with. Hallmarks of the lab work are going to include leukopenia, uh, characterized by a relative and absolute lymphopenia and a left shift, thrombocytopenia, mild anemia, and mild to moderate elevations of transaminases. Now, once again, with anaplasmosis and ehrlichiosis, the treatment is going to be doxycycline 100 milligrams BID. And this is another reason why we kind of lump them together, because the treatment's the same for them anyway. Yeah, that makes it kind of easy. So the other culprit in the febrile illness without a rash syndrome is babesiosis. Here, the patient will present with high fever and flu-like symptoms one to even nine weeks after exposure. 
Lab work here is again helpful both in diagnosis and in assessing disease severity. In babesiosis, you will see evidence of hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, elevated BUN and creatinine, and mildly elevated transaminases. Again, immunocompromised patients are at increased risk of severe disease. In particular, ACE black patients are at very high risk. Severe babesiosis can lead to complications such as ARDS, DIC, CHF, renal failure, splenic rupture, and severe jaundice. And fulminant disease can actually be fatal. The strongest association with severe outcomes are high levels of parasitemia, as seen on the smear, and anemia with a hemoglobin under 10. So labs do kind of play, play a role here. This is one of the few illnesses that is not treated with doxy. Yeah, that's why you always have to be keyed into the diagnosis of babesiosis or the possibility, because here we're going to give them a 10-day course of atovaquone, 750 milligrams BID, and azithromycin, 500 milligrams PO on day one, followed by 250 milligrams a day for another two to 10 days. In cases of severe illness, you're going to want to start clindamycin IV, 300 to 600 milligrams every six hours, plus quinine, 650 milligrams every six to eight hours. So a very different treatment course. And if you think that the patient has babesiosis, you're probably going to want to get an infectious disease consultant on board to guide the antibiotic management. If the patient is really ill, exchange transfusion can be life-saving therapy here. It removes the cytokines, replenishes the erythrocytes, and removes the parasites. It is typically reserved for a parasitemia greater than 10%, but it really should be considered in any babesiosis patient who's either very ill-appearing or is asplenic. And here's a place where you don't need ID, but you actually need your hematology team to come on board if the patient looks really ill. So, so far we've covered localized rash with or without fever, early Lyme or tularemia, and fever without a rash, ehrlichiosis and anaplasmosis, as well as babesiosis. So now we'll go on to the third syndrome, which is fever with a generalized rash. Two tick-borne illnesses fall into this syndrome. The first is disseminated Lyme. In the disseminated stage of Lyme, the patient will have multiple secondary annular rashes, flu-like symptoms, and lymphadenopathy. Additionally, they may develop rheumatologic manifestations such as a migratory arthritis. They could have cardiac manifestations such as conduction abnormalities, myocarditis or pericarditis, or they could have neurologic manifestations like a Bell's palsy or even meningitis or encephalitis. Here, again, the treatment is, of course, doxycycline. The other illness that is going to present with fever and a generalized rash is, well, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. We had to come back Rocky to it Mountain at some spotted point. spotted fever. Patients with, we should make a band, Rocky Mountain spotted <laughs> yeah. fever. Patients with Rocky Mountain spotted fever are going to present with a high fever, flu-like symptoms, severe headache, and they're often going to have GI symptoms like nausea and vomiting as well. It usually starts about two to 14 days after exposure. The rash usually comes two to five days after the fever, and it's gonna be characterized by small, flat, pink, non-pruritic macules initially that appear on the wrists and forearms and ankles and then spread to the trunk. Now, the rash will sometimes include the palms and the soles, and that can be helpful in differentiation. But we should keep in mind that about 10% of patients with Rocky Mountain spotted fever are never gonna have a rash at all. Later in the course, around maybe day six or so, you're going to get the classic petechial rash that develops. Development of the petechial rash is considered a herald of progression to severe disease, and that's a really bad sign in these patients. Labs may be helpful, again, in assessing disease severity and helping you decide on your patient's dispo. You may see thrombocytopenia, mildly elevated transaminases, and hyponatremia. Again, we sound a bit like a broken record, but the treatment here is a 14-day course of doxycycline. Rocky Mountain spotted fever can be fatal without treatment, so keep this in the back of your mind for febrile patients, especially considering 10% of patients are never going to actually develop the rash. 
All right, so that brings us to the last syndrome, number four, which is the acute weakness syndrome. A neuro finding such as weakness most often represents disseminated Lyme, but another condition that we need to know about is tick paralysis. It's important to consider because it can be fatal without treatment. Unknown toxins in the saliva of various ticks are responsible for tick paralysis. The dermacenter ticks seem to be responsible for most of this in the U.S., Symptoms usually begin with paresthesias, generalized fatigue, and weakness, and they usually don't have a fever that accompanies it. Interestingly, they're often going to report paresthesias, but their sensory exam will be normal. Most patients will go on to develop an unsteady gait that progresses to ascending paralysis and loss of DTRs. In severe cases, paralysis can involve the respiratory muscles, which of course can lead to death. Keep ticks in mind when evaluating a patient with progressive weakness. It really highlights the need for a good history. If the patient says they've been traveling or hiking in the woods before this happened, it's something that we should be thinking about. And you're going to have to sort of go exploring for the tick because the treatment here is removal. Even if they've progressed to pretty severe paralysis, it just means the tick is continuing to secrete that active substance. And we it's need to just remove so simple. It's just so simple. It's, just so it's simple. like a foreign body removal. That's it. You just take it yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Except uh, <laughs> a lot more complicated because rarely does the rectal foreign body cause progressive weakness. But it is something to think about in all these patients, although it's going to be pretty rare. And let's be honest, we're probably going to go a whole career without seeing it. But in that patient with the undifferentiated weakness who gives you that history of hiking in the woods, at least think about it. Right. And I just want to mention there that depending on the type of tick involved, some patients may actually worsen in the 24 to 48 hours right after tick removal. So in general, it would probably be a safe practice to observe these patients for a day or maybe two just to monitor them for improvement. It's a good tip. So yeah. So that was a lot. We talked about the four main syndromes as a way to kind of break down the various tick-borne illnesses. For most of these, we said we would treat with doxycycline. Now, Swami, I remember being taught something about not being able to give doxycycline to kids. It had something to do with ruining their teeth and disfiguring them for life. Now, I know that, <laughs> and I think all our listeners know, that you are a stickler for evidence-based medicine. So what do you think about this? So this idea of the doxycycline causing tooth staining is a myth. It is dogma, and we need to lice it. People think that because there is a warning on the tetracycline class of drugs causing tooth staining, that applies to all of that class. And doxy is a later tetracycline class drug, and a study that was published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2015, children who had received doxy before the age of eight in the treatment of suspected Rocky Mountain spotted fever, where it really is the only medication that works, well, they never really had any problems. When they compared them to kids who never received doxy, there was no difference. Dentists who were blinded to exposure status performed quantitative and qualitative evaluations of tooth color and enamel hypoplasia, and they found that there was none of that tetracycline-like staining. So I don't think we really need to worry about this too much. If doxycycline is the right drug for that kid, go ahead and give it. Yeah, we really need to spread the word on this. A 2012 CDC survey found that 80% of responding cl clinicians correctly selected doxycycline as the treatment of choice for suspected Rocky Mountain spotted fever in patients aged 8 or older, but only 35% correctly chose doxy as the treatment of choice for suspected Rocky Mountain spotted fever in children younger than 8 years of age. This is a potentially fatal disease. We really need to know the correct treatment and be willing to give it. Yeah, so the creepy crawlies can cause some pretty nasty stuff with some vague symptoms when they come in. So Jenny, why don't you hit us with those take-home points? This is a bit of a longer podcast than we usually have. So let's nail home the stuff that everybody needs to know when they leave. Absolutely. First, when it comes to tick-borne illnesses, prevention is key. Recommend appropriate bug sprays and frequent tick checks for patients who are at risk. 
Second, routine prophylaxis for most tick-borne illnesses is not recommended. If you are in a highly endemic area for Lyme, like we are here in New York, you can consider a single doxy dose for prophylaxis. I'd refer you to the CDC guidelines in the show notes for the specifics. Third, there are four main syndromes for the tick-borne illnesses. One, a localized rash with or without fever caused by localized Lyme or tularemia. Two, a febrile illness without a rash caused by anaplasmosis or lichiosis or babesiosis. Three, a fever with a generalized rash caused by disseminated Lyme or Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And four, acute weakness caused by tick paralysis or disseminated Lyme. If you can keep these syndromes straight, you will know which illness you should be thinking about for your patient and then look up the appropriate treatment. And treatment brings me to my last take-home point, which is for you can use doxy in children. When this is the appropriate drug to give, you should give it. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday on the sensitivity of non-con head CT for diagnosing subarachnoid hemorrhage when performed under six hours. Visit us on Facebook and like us if you like the site. Visit our Google Plus page and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you all next week.